It's one of those questions that I think we've all heard at some point, and maybe you have an opinion on. It's the question of which came first, the chicken or the egg? If you're watching on Facebook or YouTube, let us know in the comments which one you think it is. I thought about this question recently because I was searching for, for new board games uh, to buy, and I found this game on Amazon. It's a really cool game. It's called What Came First? And in this game, you have a card, and the card has two things on it, and you have to guess which thing came into existence first. And based upon your confidence in your pick, you can bet, and that's part of how you earn points and win the game. And I'm from Las Vegas, born and raised. They, the game had me at bet. Um, and so I thought we might play a little bit of what came first today as we chart this message out. Uh, so if you're watching with some people at home, this is your chance for you guys to compete against each other. But the first question is this, what came first, the, the blender or the toaster? Figure out which one you're going to go with, okay? Blender or toaster. And the winner is the toaster. Toaster came into existence in 1893. It was about uh, 30 years later that the first blender came into existence, okay? We have three questions we're going to go through today. The second question is this. Which came first, the zipper or Velcro? Both are really, really important, helpful inventions. Uh, If you guessed the zipper came first, you are correct. That was 1851. It was many years later on into the 20th century that we saw Velcro. And then a little bit of a rhyming question here. Which came first, King Kong or Ping Pong? King Kong or Ping Pong? If you guessed Ping Pong, you are correct. 1860s in Britain. It wasn't until the 1930s that King Kong first appeared. Now, the reason why I raised all of those which came first is that today, as we continue our series, When People Meet Jesus, we're going to be talking about two things how we see ourselves, and how we see Jesus. And we're going to have to wrestle with the question of which comes first? Which one impacts more? Is it how I see myself or is it how I see Jesus? And we're going to talk about the interplay between those two. If you're watching today for the first time, uh, we're in a series called When People Meet Jesus. Over six weeks, we're looking at six different moments in the life of Jesus where he encountered somebody. and, And that conversation, that meeting revealed stuff about that person, revealed stuff about Jesus. And in that encounter, we're seeing things that we need to know about ourselves and about Jesus. If you want to play catch up on this series, you can go to our website, prescottcornerstone.com, look under the sermons tab, and you'll be able to watch the previous messages in this series. But today, in week four, here's the big idea we're going to look at. And I kind of mentioned this a little bit already. The big idea is this, that how you see Jesus shapes how you see yourself. And how you see yourself, it shapes how you see Jesus. Both of these are connected and they impact one another. Our view of ourselves and our view of Jesus. I mentioned each week in this series, we're looking at an encounter somebody had with Jesus. And today we're going to look at the the encounter two people had with Jesus. And those two people are a man named Simon and a woman that we don't know her name. We just know her the way the Bible describes her, the way that Simon actually describes her as the notoriously sinful woman. Great title to have. 
But we're going to dig into their story today. And their story is told in the book of Luke. So if you have a Bible, I'm going to grab mine. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. That's where we're going to start today. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it up. Head towards the back. You'll see four books in order. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the four gospels or biographies of the life and teaching of Jesus. We're actually reading through all four of these on the road to Easter. And so beginning in verse 36, this is what we're going to find. Here's what Luke records. Then one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to eat with him. So Jesus entered the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. In that day, they didn't sit at chairs. They sat down and reclined on cushions at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner, your Bible may say who was a notorious sinner, She found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and she stood behind Jesus at his feet, weeping and beginning to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, He said to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who's touching him. She's a sinner. Then Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say. He said, say it, teacher. A creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii. A denarii was basically a day's wages in that period. So basically one owed him 500 days wages and the other 50 days wages. Since they could not pay it back, the creditor, he graciously forgave them both. So Simon, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly, Jesus told Simon. And turned to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. And that day they walked around in sandals. His feet would have been disgustingly dirty. But she with her tears, has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. It was a common greeting in that day to greet someone with a kiss. Even men did this. But she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You did not anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with Jesus began to say to him, say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus, we pray that today as we open your word and dive into this encounter, that you would reveal what we need to see about you and ourselves. We pray that we would see you with crystal clarity, that we'd see ourselves with the same clarity that you see us, and that we take away from this time what you want us to. And I pray selfishly that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Today, what I want to do as we dive into this story 
this encounter in Luke 7 with Simon and this woman, I want us to examine three truths that this text reveals about seeing clearly. Three truths about seeing clearly. And if you're taking notes, you can follow along. Here's the first one. That seeing ourselves through self-righteousness blinds us to the real Jesus. When we see ourselves through the lens of self-righteousness, it blinds us to who Jesus really is. And this is the problem that's faced by Simon, the first person we meet in the story. In Luke seven thirty-six, this is what we read. Then one of the Pharisees, who later we know as Simon, invited Jesus to eat with him. So Jesus entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, we're not told in this text what, what it was that precipitated this invitation. We're not told what the relationship was that Jesus had with Simon before this. We don't know. It could be they'd had other conversations. Uh, it could be that there was some reason why Simon invited him. And, and while there was no agenda in writing for this meeting for this dinner, it begins to become clear that Simon has an agenda or expectations for this meal. And and that agenda comes out when this woman shows up to dinner. Now, in our world, we have dinner with people very differently than they did in the day of Jesus. If I invited you over to my house for dinner, I'd be very clear. I was inviting you. I wasn't inviting everybody. And if somebody just decided to crash the party, I'm not sure I would be super excited about them just inviting themselves to dinner. But in the day of Jesus, if somebody had been invited into someone's home for a meal— And this person was somebody uh, of influence or authority, somebody who had some sort of power, like a rabbi of Jesus's stature would, somebody who was well-known and and talked about in the community. Then other people around would hear, hey, that person has gone to this person's house for a meal. And other people would just kind of invite themselves and they would step into the house and kind of sit or stand on the periphery and kind of just observe the conversation. That's what happens here. Simon invites Jesus to dinner, and this woman from the same community basically lets herself in to the dinner, and she's standing on the outside. Everyone else would have been seated at the table. They would have been reclining, kind of on a cushion, and their feet would have been behind them. Still to this day in the, in the Middle East and in the Far East, to, to put your feet up and face someone else while seated is just an act of pure disrespect. I mean, if you're kind of having both feet out like this and you're sitting across from me and you see the soles of my feet, it basically means that I don't think you're worth a whole lot, a whole lot of honor, a whole lot of respect. So their feet would have been behind them. So this woman stands behind Jesus and she begins to do these things with her tears and her hair and her perfume. And we see the response of Simon in verse 39. It says, according to Luke, that when the Pharisee, whose name Simon, had invited, who invited Jesus, saw this, when he saw what this woman was doing, he says to himself, and we're unclear here if it's like literally he's muttering under his breath or he's just thinking this in his head. This man... If he were a prophet, he would know who and what kind of woman this is who's touching him. She's a sinner. So so in his head, Simon is showing incredible disdain for this woman. 
And whether he tells that story later to Luke, who meticulously researched all of this, Luke wasn't present for any of this, but when he wrote his gospel, you read this in the introduction, he meticulously researched all of these events using his scholarly training as a doctor to record them accurately. And he records this guy showing incredible disdain. But if you really read what happens there, he doesn't speak to the woman. He doesn't say to her, hey, get out of here. Hey, you don't belong here. Hey, your kind aren't welcome here. No, what he does is he expresses his disgust with Jesus. Simon is more disgusted with Jesus than the woman. What does the text say? If this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and he wouldn't allow this woman to touch him. This guy is just, he's disgusted with Jesus. He's like, I thought you were a prophet. I thought you knew better than this. And this, this moment right here is, is a great reminder for all of us that our private thoughts aren't hidden from Jesus. Whether or not this man muttered this to himself or he, he said it in his head, Jesus knew. And immediately Jesus begins to address this mindset in Simon by the story he tells. You see, Simon had a, a set of expectations for Jesus, kind of like a cookie cutter. He had a, a picture of who he thought prophets like Jesus, who he perceived as a prophet, were. Rabbis, teachers. He expected Jesus to be a certain way. And not just in terms of himself, in terms of the way he saw this woman. See, Simon, he thinks that he is better than this woman. What does he call her? He says, she's a sinner. She's not valuable. She's not worthy. She shouldn't be touching you. See, what happens in this passage is that Simon's self-righteousness, it blinds him to who Jesus really is and what Jesus really came for. And again and again, Jesus comes close to and allows people to come close to him who the society of the day considered unworthy, dirty, invaluable, outsiders, not worthy of honor and respect. And again and again, Jesus views those people as the reason why he's come. But Simon doesn't consider himself as somebody who, who needs those things. And Simon's a great reminder. He's like a mirror for a lot of us. Because when you're like Simon and you don't see yourself as a sinner, you tend to struggle to give to sinners what sinners need. See, when, when you don't see your need for grace and forgiveness, you struggle to offer it to others. I know I do. When I'm in a season where I am arrogant, where I'm proud, where I don't think I've got a lot of flaws or I don't need a whole lot of grace and forgiveness, I don't give it to myself. I don't see it as a need in myself. And then when I encounter other people who need a lot of it, I, I struggle to give it. See, what Jesus says in this passage is he says that our ability to see our own need for forgiveness, it impacts the way we relate to God and other people. Let me give you a practical illustration. I went back in the archives. I pulled out an old hard drive this week, and I found a photo of me from my final year of college. This is Scott circa 2006. I love the blue striped shorts. Thank God I have emerged my fashion sense since then. The haircut's changed. I've gotten uh, eye surgery. I no longer wear glasses. But this was the first car I bought. I bought it my senior year of college. And during that time, I, I was working with students at a church as a volunteer. 
Several years later, uh, I was working on staff at that church and now with college students. And, and randomly one day, instead of all of the college students who were part of our program, uh, a, a mom came in. And I knew that she was a mom of one of the students I'd had when I worked with high schoolers. And typically moms didn't attend our college program, but she sat in the back, took notes, and then left before we were done. I didn't have a chance to talk to her. And I, I began kind of asking around, figuring out, hey, why did she, why did she show up? And the story I got back was, well, it was pretty sobering. You see, her son was about to graduate from high school, move into college, and he would be a potential attendee of this program I was running. And she was concerned about him attending a program that I was associated with. Because apparently, and I don't remember this, when I was back working with her son when he was in high school and I was a college student, I apparently was a pretty arrogant guy. I was apparently a pretty self-righteous guy. And she vividly remembered a, a certain teaching that I had given during that period where I had come across as incredibly judgmental, legalistic, and self-righteous. And, and she said to somebody I knew, this is a direct quote, if Scott is still the kid that he was back then, I don't want my son around that kind of influence. I wasn't this influence that was going to get her son hooked on drugs or, or partying and throwing benders. I was the kind of person who was going to lead him into a toxic version of Christianity, according to her mindset. And so she showed up in the back to see if I had grown up and moved on. Well, we ended up having a very significant lunch a few weeks later. And she had to share about who she'd experienced me to be at that point. And I had the opportunity to own that and apologize and talk about where I was then and now. I'm grateful that over the next few years, she became a great friend and somebody that I actually got the opportunity to allow to care for my kids and shape and mold them in the beginning of their lives. And I think back on that conversation because that version of me was so self-righteous that I missed who Jesus came for. My inability to see my need for grace kept me from giving grace to other people. And like Simon, my self-righteousness blinded me to who Jesus really was. That's the first truth about seeing clearly that our self-righteousness can blind us to the real Jesus. The second truth about seeing clearly is this, that seeing ourselves through forgiveness reveals the beauty of the real Jesus. So, so while our self-righteousness blinds us, when we see ourselves through forgiveness, we can begin to perceive the beauty of Jesus. And this is what happens with this sinful woman. Back in the text in Luke 7, we read this, that a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume. We'll talk more about that in a second. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with perfume. Now this woman, we don't ever learn her name. This is the only moment it seems that she's appearing in the gospels. And all we know is that she was a notorious sinner. And that day for a woman to have gained that title, one of two things was true. Either one, she had been through a number of marriages to the point 
that she'd violated the, the teaching and tradition of the Jews around that and was sinning in the way she related to men, or she had a profession where her job involved notorious sexual sin. Either way, her reputation in that community where she and Simon lived, everybody knew her for that very thing. It was like a scarlet letter she wore, not that different than the Samaritan woman we talked about a few weeks ago. And what we see with those around her personified in Simon is that people have always been quick to judge those who struggle in ways they don't. Even today, if somebody that you meet wrestles with something, struggles with something, has failed in some area where you've never had any problem, it's really easy to judge them and make uh, assessments and uh, labeling of them. But if you've battled that same thing they're battling, if you've struggled in the same way they're struggling, instead of being quick to judge, you're quick to have empathy and compassion. And this woman is, is the recipient of the judgment of Simon. But she's also somebody who obviously had heard the message of Jesus. She'd heard what Jesus was about, what he was teaching, and what he came to do. Because when she hears that Jesus is in her town, she comes and she shows lavish gratitude and praise on Jesus. She stands behind him and she just weeps out of gratitude. So much, so much water, so much tears that she has to dry them with her hair. She kisses and, and the, 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 the literal translation of kisses fails to represent it. It's like kissing and ongoing kissing, just like you know, I can imagine one of my kids and they said they want to kiss me. And I'm like, just stop kissing me. This is enough kisses. She's showering him with kisses. And then she pulls out something incredibly valuable. The text says that she pulls out an alabaster jar of perfume. Alabaster was an incredibly expensive stone in that day. And it was used in her case to store perfume, which was expensive. I know in our day, you got like the cheap stuff. You have the expensive stuff at Macy's, you know, the stuff that doesn't smell great. The stuff that smells amazing. You know, we've invented spray, you know, uh, for teenagers, spray deodorant, spray perfume, spray uh, cologne. But in this day, to have perfume was a very rare thing. So it was a very valuable thing. And she takes this out and brings it with her in preparation, knowing that she wants to express her gratitude to Jesus by pouring this perfume on him. It's an act of worship. It's an act of recognition of who Jesus is, what he's done, and what he's about. See, see, when we worship Jesus, worship for us is our response to the sacrifice of Jesus. Worship is our sacrifice in response to his sacrifice. This woman she, she sacrifices this thing that she had, this perfume, in, in response to what Jesus has done for her. And when we worship, whether we worship on Sunday by singing or we worship by how we live our lives, it's our sacrifice in response to the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross. And this woman in this moment, she is incredibly overwhelmed because she recognizes that she needs what Jesus has come to share. She saw her need for a savior and her need for a savior helped her see it revealed the nature of Jesus. She experiences Jesus for who he is and what he came to do. 
And that's because she knows her own sin and her brokenness. Simon can't see his need for a savior. He thinks that he's better than her. He's self-righteous. He misses who Jesus is. But this woman recognizes her true state and her ability to see herself. It helps her to see the beauty of who Jesus is. That's why for a lot of us, we don't see Jesus as he is. We see Jesus as we are or in light of who we are. So I said at the beginning that the way we see ourselves, it impacts and shapes how we see Jesus. If you think that, that you're somebody who has it all together, who really has got life figured out, you think you're better than other people. Well, when it comes to the idea of forgiveness and saving, you're like, I don't need a savior. I don't need forgiveness. I just need a little bit of help over here and I'll figure it out. But when you've hit rock bottom in life, when you've recognized that you don't have it all together, you don't have it all figured out, and you are in desperate need of a second chance, well, then you see Jesus and what he's offering you, what he's made possible in a totally different light. Put another way, my brokenness, your brokenness, it helps me see Jesus's beauty. Because you'll never experience Jesus as your savior until you recognize that you need saving. You'll never experience the forgiveness of Jesus until you recognize you're in need of forgiving. You'll never recognize the beauty of what Jesus wants to do in your life until you recognize the brokenness that you're in right now and the healing and wholeness that you need him to bring. So Simon's self-righteousness, it blinded him to Jesus. But this woman's sense of herself, her own awareness of her need for forgiveness, it helped her see the beauty of Jesus. Here's the third truth. Seeing the real Jesus opens our eyes to see ourselves clearly. When, when we see Jesus for who he really is, it helps us to see ourselves for who we really are too. And this is the point of the story Jesus shares with Simon. He says this whole story about this man who has two people who owe him, one owes him a lot, one owes him a little. He decides to forgive them both. Jesus says, so since they couldn't pay him back, he graciously forgave them both. So Simon, which of them will love him more? And Simon's reply, I suppose, which I think is a little bit sarcastic. Like he, he knows the answer, but he doesn't like it. You know, I suppose the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly, Jesus told him. Therefore, I tell you, this woman her sins have been forgiven. And that's why she loved much. That's why she's done all this stuff for me while I've been sitting here. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. He's saying, hey, the reason you've not shown me acts of love, you don't think you need forgiveness. But this woman, she sees her need. She sees the forgiveness and she responds differently. In this story, everything that Simon didn't do, she did. Simon didn't wash Jesus' feet like any good host would, but she did. Simon didn't greet him with a kiss. <laughs> she didn't stop kissing him. Simon didn't anoint him. She did. See, what happens is that her salvation and her forgiveness, it doesn't just change that moment for her. It makes peace possible for her. And the final statement at the end of the passage, he says, go, go in peace. And I think about what that woman's life was like after that day, what her future looked like. And as I was thinking about that, that, that closing statement, go in peace, 
it reminded me about what Jesus came to do. You see, Jesus didn't just come to change your past, my past. He didn't just come to change our eternity. He wants to see change in our life, even here and now. And, and when, I was, uh, when I was little, I can remember hearing in church people sharing about how to share your faith. They said, hey, one of the questions you should ask people who don't share your faith, who aren't followers of Jesus, is this question. If you were to die tonight, do you know if you would go to heaven? Why? Some of you, maybe this question was a question somebody asked you that was a part of you recognizing your need for a savior and beginning a relationship with Jesus. It's a famous question. It's an often used question. It's a good question. I don't have any beef with this question, but I do have a thought. You can answer this question for yourself today. And some of you, yeah, this might be your very last day. You might die tonight. But most of us, if we're honest, we're going to wake up tomorrow. And I've got a question to ask about that. If you were to wake up tomorrow, will you have peace? Most of us are not going to die tonight. Most of us are going to wake up tomorrow. And if we do, the question I have for you is when you wake up, are you going to have peace in your heart? Are you going to have peace in terms of how you see yourself? Are you going to have peace as you go out in this day and in this world? This woman went to bed that night. I don't know if she laid on a pillow, but when she woke up the next morning, I wondered if the words that Jesus spoke to her rang in her ears. Go in peace. I think, this is not in scripture, this is just Scott. I think she woke up the next morning with a peace that she had never experienced before. Yeah, all the problems of her life remained for her but something had fundamentally changed within her. How she saw herself and this Jesus that she had an encounter with. And that's what I want to encourage you with today. If you were to die tonight, I hope you know where you would go. If you don't, I'd encourage you to dive back into the gospels and get that question solved once and for all by surrendering your life to Jesus. But if you do wake up tomorrow, I wonder if you're going to have peace and if you know where that peace can come from. I said at the beginning, how you see Jesus, it can shape how you see yourself. And how you see yourself, it shapes how you see Jesus. And I'd encourage you that part of this series is an opportunity for you to experience who Jesus really was in a way that changes how you see yourself and how you experience life today. A life that you can experience with a lot more peace. Before we close today, I want to share some next steps with you. If you're taking notes or you've got a copy of our handout, you can follow along with these. Here's the first next step. I want to invite you this week to pray the blind spot prayer with someone you trust. I'd encourage you to pray the blind spot prayer this week with somebody you trust. Don't do this by yourself. Somebody you trust, I want to encourage you to pray the blind spot prayer. You go, Scott, I've never heard of the blind spot prayer. That's because I invented it this week. At least the title for it. The blind spot prayer is recorded in Psalm 139, the final verses of that chapter. David writes these words that I think make a great prayer. 
Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. I think there's great potential in you and me for us to be like Simon, to have blind spots of self-righteousness, arrogance, and judgmentalism. And when we pray the blind spot prayer with somebody else, we're asking God to search our hearts, know our hearts, and to reveal any offensive ways in us. And if, if you're struggling to hear that from God, part of why you pray it with somebody else is you invite them to go, hey, I'm not yet hearing anything from God, but do you see anything? Are there any blind spots in my life that you see? And I'd encourage you, if you ask that question of somebody who's close to you, be prepared to hear something you might not want to hear. But when somebody shows you what's in your blind spot, whether it's God or somebody you care about, they're giving you a gift because eventually what's in our blind spot has the potential to destroy us. And why not learn about it and ask God to work in that space? So pray the blind spot prayer this week. Number two, make or review the list of what or how you've been forgiven. I want you to reflect this week about all the ways that you've experienced God's forgiveness and people's forgiveness. You say, Scott, why would I want to do that? Well, look back at Luke seven forty seven. Jesus says, this woman, her sins, her many sins have been forgiven and that's why she loved much. But the one who was forgiven little loves little. So I know that the scriptures tell us that Jesus forgives us and he forgets. He separates our sin as the east is from the west. He's not constantly bringing it up. And I'm not saying that you should constantly bring up your failures and mistakes from your past. But I do want to encourage you to review the list of how you've been forgiven so that it will build a sense of gratitude in your heart that will change how you relate to God and relate to other people. The temptation for us is always to drift towards arrogance and pride. And when we remember all that we've been forgiven for, it humbles us and it puts us in a position where we are more likely to give forgiveness. Because again, if you think you've been forgiven little, you're going to love little. You think you've been forgiven little, you're going to give little forgiveness. But if like the, the sinful woman, you recognize all you've been forgiven for, it leads to a lavish expression of worship and love. Third next step, final one today, is to read the book of Luke with this question. How does Jesus see me differently than I see myself? How does Jesus see me differently than I see myself? I mentioned earlier that as a church, we're reading through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John throughout this season leading to Easter. And if you're just joining us and you've not been doing, or maybe you're with us and you just haven't jumped on the reading plan, we started Luke just a couple days ago on Friday, Luke 1. And starting this week, we're going to read through Luke 2 through Luke 16. And then next week, we're going to spend the first couple days in Luke. But over the next 10 days, I would encourage you to read through the book of Luke with us. And as you read through the encounters that Jesus has with people in Luke, and you see how he sees those people, I want you to ask yourself the question, how does Jesus see me differently than I see myself? Because I believe that we really grow 
and we really step forward into the life Jesus has for us when the way that we see ourselves lines up with the way Jesus sees us. At the end of the day, I believe that the truest things about you and the truest things about me are the things that Jesus says about us and that his perspective on us is the ultimate one. Remember, how you see Jesus shapes how you see yourself. And how you see yourself, it shapes how you see Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this reminder from Luke chapter 7. We thank you for this encounter. And, and we confess that, that for many of us, our, our temptation, our, our tendency is to drift towards Simon a place of self-righteousness, a place of arrogance, a, a place of pride where we think more of ourselves than we ought and we think of others less than we ought. And so we confess that, that we have looked down on other people with arrogance and judgment, that we've lost sight, Jesus, of how much you have forgiven us and that's impacted the forgiveness we've been willing to give and the love we've been willing to give. We pray that we would see today that, that all of us, in one place or another, we're like that sinful woman. We're in desperate need of your forgiveness. And we pray as we recognize all that you have done for us, the sacrifice you've made for us, and the forgiveness you've made possible for us, that it would change how we see ourselves and how we see you. We pray that we would see ourselves the way you do and that we would recognize the peace that you're making available for us. I know so many of us in this season have battled anxiety and depression, have, have battled anything and everything but peace. But I pray as we meditate on your word, as we experience you in new and fresh ways, we'll remember that you have made possible a peace in our lives that passes all understanding. And I pray that when we wake up tomorrow, we'll wake up with that peace. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.